A Spanish bus driver was making his normal rounds very early in the morning of February 5, 2003. It was nearing the end of his 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift, and he was ready for his work to end. It was cold, and he was tired. He was approaching the bus stop at the Plaza del Mar roundabout when he saw a man laying on the ground near a bench. He pulled the bus over and exited it. The man was dead. He had bled heavily from a wound to his head. The concerned driver tried to make a call from the bus radio, but the signal was poor. Luckily, a passenger was carrying a cell phone, which the driver used to call for help. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today's case takes place in Spain, and we're going to get started. The news reported the next morning that a 28-year-old man was found dead at the Plaza del Mar Square in Almeria de Azuna Barajas. The man had been shot in the back of the head, with a bullet exiting his left eye. The footage showed police tape being removed to clean the scene. Murder wasn't all that unusual in the area. At that time, a murder occurred once every three days, and those numbers would climb even higher in February and March. The crime journalists felt overwhelmed. They barely had time to cover one case before another occurred. A local journalist said that crime journalism can be tricky. It requires you to be with people who are having a tough time. It also requires that you be cautious with your sources, gain the trust of the police and the civil guard, and to be out on the streets, which were growing more dangerous by the day. He said it takes a lot of investigation and talking to a lot of people to find the real truth. It seemed as though no one had time to do their jobs thoroughly, including the police. On this day, the journalists couldn't get to the scene until after the body had been taken. The first thing police told the journalists was that, in this case, it seemed like an execution. The police had arrived in the dark and used flashlights. They were limited in space and time. Their priority was to look for blood that didn't belong to the victim, in the hopes the murderer had been injured. They hoped to find his DNA, or anything that might link the killer to his victim. They found nothing. By the time the media showed up, it was mid-morning, and the bus stop was being used almost normally already. A cleaning service was spraying the entire crime scene with a hose, and it had only been a couple hours since the body had been found. It shocked some of the journalists. They felt the cleaning crew was erasing all kinds of evidence that would have been useful in the investigation. The journalists scrambled to put something together. As the day progressed, they found out more about the victim— his name was Martin Estacio, and he was a janitor, an airport employee whose co-workers found him to be kind and funny. He was a nice guy, and an extraordinary human being who had no known enemies. There was no apparent motive. Maybe it was a mugging that went wrong, but it seemed as if nothing had been taken. He had his wallet on him. The only strange thing at the scene was a single playing card, an ace of cups, in many Latin card decks, there are 40 cards, four suits with 10 cards each. The suits are cups, swords, coins, and clubs, but the clubs look more like police batons. These cards are mostly used for gaming, but they're also used to read fortunes. The ace of cups gave the journalists something they could use, something interesting and discussable. What could it mean? That card is often used to symbolize fortune, since it was found at the victim's feet, it led to speculation of all kinds. 
They wondered, had it been found face up or face down? The former meant good luck, and the latter meant bad. Did the victim have debts? Was he a gambler? Of course, it was possible that the card meant nothing. Perhaps it had been dropped at any time the day before, but it looked new. It hadn't been run over or stepped on. It seemed to most that the card was just one more item found at the scene, meaningless and coincidental, but they were wrong. As that day progressed, a reporter for the Daily News Madrid would say it was one of the busiest days of his year. As he was trying to come up with something more to write about the bus stop murder, his boss came in with news. A second murder was reported, a woman this time. He wrapped up the first article and began researching her when a call from a colleague came in, asking if he'd heard about another murder that just happened. There were two dead bodies at this one. The reporter responded to his colleague that he had to be joking. But no, it was true there had been four murders in just one day. It was a long day in crime journalism in Madrid. The last two murders happened at a bar. A server and a customer had been shot and killed. The owner of the bar, who was also the mother of the server, had been shot too, but she had survived. She was in critical condition, and the police hadn't ruled out anything yet. Perhaps the crime rate in Madrid was the real story of the day. There had been 71 murders the year prior, and the murder rate was increasing. It was starting to affect the economy. The chief of police had begun training 500 additional officers in drug and legal matters because the citizens demanded it. Between the mob and drug dealers, the city was struggling. The four murders eventually faded into the background, as the violence continued unabated. One month later, on March 7th, at three in the morning, the Daily News Madrid would get a tip from the Civil Guard. A man from Tres Cantos had been shot. 27-year-old Santiago Eduardo Salus and a female friend, 29, Anahid Castillo Ruperti, were talking in a doorway at 3 a.m., the woman had a view of the street and noticed a man walking towards them. The man locked eyes with her and raised a gun. Eduardo must have seen the fear in Anna's eyes because he began to turn his head to see what she was looking at when the man pulled the trigger. The shot went through his jaw and he dropped to the floor. Anna had ducked just in time, but she heard the man reload his gun. She was sure she was going to die, too. She froze in place. The man aimed at her and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. He stood staring at her for a moment before pulling a card out of his pocket and throwing it at her feet, then running away. Anna immediately called the police and was able to give a description of the man. He was around six feet tall, slim, and had a shaggy hairstyle and some facial hair. This time, when the journalists arrived on the scene hoping to catch a photo of the police with the victim, they were too late. The wounded man had been transported to the hospital, where thanks to Anna's quick actions and the emergency medical services team, Eduardo lived. There were no body photos to be taken, but the journalists saw bandages, needles, surgical tape, and other medical supplies strewn about. This wasn't an uncommon sight for first responders on the scene, but what was uncommon was that playing card laying on the ground amidst the medical mess. It was the Two of Cups, and it would send the police, the media, and the public into a frenzy. 
They remembered the playing card from the murder earlier that month, and now a second card had been found. This obviously linked the murders, but what was the message? Was this a serial killer? What was his or her motive? The Civil Guard headquarters were inundated with reporters. They wanted to know if the police had any leads. There were no answers. The journalists wanted a story, but they didn't want to be accused of creating panic. In this case, it seemed that the police were already panicking. They, too, assumed the worst, and before long, there would be another killing. Once Anna was released, and after being treated for shock, the media pounced. She was a beautiful girl, a student who had only been in Spain for a few months. Her face was plastered all over the newspaper and screens. If there was a serial killer out there, he knew who she was now, and she was scared. The Civil Guard protected her, while also securing a sketch based on her description. When comparing the crime scenes, one occurred in a slightly more rural area. There were good escape routes nearby, but the second was located in the middle of the city. The killer could have been seen by anyone. The police held their cards close to the chest, not letting anyone know what they knew, especially not the media who assumed it was the same person. When they asked repeatedly, the authorities always responded the same way. They didn't know if it was the same person. It could have been a copycat. Anything was possible. The police had to find a definitive link, preferably bullets, shells, or casings. The search for a bullet was on. It took the police three days, but eventually they found it. It was 25 meters from where Eduardo Santiago had been hit in the jaw. It had ricocheted, hit something else, and bounced away. Finally, they had a clue. After extensive ballistic testing, they figured out the bullet had been fired from a Tokarev. These guns were Yugoslavian and carried specific bullets. It was a very rare gun in Spain, so if they could find it, or find where it came from, they'd be able to find the killer. But the police kept this lead to themselves. Eleven days later, after the Two of Cups was dropped, Madrid's anxious public would have even more reason for worry. Romanian husband and wife, Gheorghe and Diona Magda, had just finished a long night of work. As they made their way along a dirt path, a man appeared behind them, seemingly out of nowhere. He shot Gheorghe in the head from behind. Terrified, Diona turned to see what had happened when the killer shot at her. She dropped to the ground, raising her hands to protect herself. She was shot three times until she was no longer conscious. The killer took a moment to reach into his pocket, pulling out two playing cards, the three and four of cups, and throwing them on the ground before leaving the scene of the crime. Diona survived for two days before passing away in the hospital. If it wasn't clear before, now everyone knew. There was a serial killer on the loose. The police were able to match the bullets to the Tokarev used in the previous murders and the cards. Well, they were a dead giveaway. The police set up a tip line, and as you would probably predict, this led police on several wild goose chases. There were over 2,000 calls, all of which proved useless. Some were from feuding neighbors, others from vengeful ex-lovers. All in time were deemed worthless. The police decided to look back at all the recent murders to see if there was a vital clue that was overlooked. All the victims were shot at point-blank range, so the killer enjoyed being up close and personal with his or her victims. 
They were all shot in the head, neck, or back, unless they tried to get away. A psychiatrist that worked closely with police and the Civil Guard built a personality profile of the playing card killer. He said, The killer we are facing is a highly frustrated person who somehow releases that frustration by doing what he does. He's an attention seeker. Contrary to what some media outlets say about him being a sadist, I don't think he is. He's not merciless. What he's doing is experimenting. He's experiencing fame, and it's very likely that this person is watching this program. He almost certainly lives in Madrid. The psychiatrist hypothesized that the killer was someone young, in his late 20s and early 30s with a strong conviction, a frustrated personality, and someone who was a fan of guns. The most reliable piece of information in the investigation was about the gun that was used, so authorities began searching for illegal weapons in Madrid. In the early 2000s, that Tokarev gun could only be obtained in eastern countries, which led investigators to believe that the killer would have been on an international mission or some kind of deployment in eastern countries. They asked the Ministry of Defense for a list of soldiers who were in those destinations in the last few years, solely based on the weapon's origin. They also asked the Ministry of Defense to get a list of everyone who was diagnosed with psychiatric conditions. The request was for men 25 to 30 years old who had been on foreign missions. That list started with 12,000 people on it, but was reduced to 3,000 names. Based on location and the description and the sketch of the killer, the police began to zero in on a suspect. They followed that suspect day and night. He was a 25-year-old far-right extremist with a record. He was arrested under suspicion and brought in for a police lineup. The police were keeping a secret. They knew that this serial killer had killed others, not just the ones he had left the playing cards with. You see, those bullets and that gun had been used in two other murders. The first occurred in January. It was cold that time of year. Everyone wore jackets, gloves, and some even covered their faces. 50-year-old Juan Francisco Ledesma was a doorman. It was midday and the sun was bright overhead when a man walked up, making small talk with Juan. A glance around and seeing no one gave the killer confidence. He shot Juan right in front of his two-year-old daughter. Juan had been feeding the little girl in her high chair at the time. Forty-five minutes later, Juan's wife found him dead. The little girl, still strapped in her chair, told her mother that Dad fell and he doesn't want to get up. Witnesses later mentioned seeing a man loitering around the time of the murder, but couldn't describe him well and said he didn't seem suspicious. The second murder tied to the case by the weapon, but not by a card, was one I've briefly told you about already. Do you remember the murder in the bar? It happened on the same day that the bus driver found the body at the bus stop. It seemed the killer had gone on a spree killing that February day. Twelve hours after killing Juan Carlos Martin Estacio, the killer walked into a bar. It was 4.30 in the afternoon when he opened the door of the Rojas bar, marched in, and shot the 18-year-old waiter in the head. Miquel Jimenez Sanchez died immediately. Without saying a word, 
The killer then turned and shot a 57-year-old customer who had walked into the bar just moments earlier to make a phone call. Her name was Juan Dolores Lopez. She was shot through her right eye and also died immediately. The dead waiter's mother was the owner of the bar. After a moment of shock, she realized she needed to run. She tried to hide, but the killer followed her. Teresa Sanchez Garcia made it to the storeroom. The killer shot her once, then dragged her out to the bar where he shot her two more times. She played dead and would survive the attack. When she woke up days later in intensive care, the first thing she asked for was her son. At first, no one would give her an answer. She finally spoke with her parents, who told her that he was dead. He had died instantly. She was still in the ICU when he was buried. Upon her release, the first place she went was to his grave. She spent the whole day there, buried in her feelings of grief. She had seen the killer, and now the police wanted to know if their suspect was the one she had seen coming into the bar that day. She was given photo after photo, but wasn't able to pick their suspect out. The killer had been wearing sunglasses. The police then did a lineup. Teresa was terrified. The police had to hold her up. She was so unsteady on her feet. Four men lined up. They looked very much alike. Teresa identified the third man as the killer. She had remembered seeing his picture in the photos from the day before. Case closed, right? Well, no. If the suspect the police had in custody was a puzzle piece, he couldn't be forced to fit into the empty hole. He couldn't give them definitive information about the crime. When he was arrested, he had thought it was something to do with drug charges. When he was told he was being arrested for murder, he was surprised and confused. The investigators couldn't find evidence of him at the scenes, and they even had trouble placing him at the crime scenes. The biggest problem, well, he was in jail during one of the murders. It was possible that he'd been arrested as part of a political play. He was arrested for the murders just days before an election, and the announcement that they had the wrong guy only came after the election results had been solidified. He was not the killer. Spring turned into a hot summer in Madrid, but the case cooled. Four months went by, and the calendar pages flipped to July with no breaks in the case. The good news was no playing card murders had occurred either. It was July 3rd when someone called the Porteano police station, claiming that he was the playing card killer. I want to clarify that this is not the same police station that was investigating the playing card murders. A police dispatcher was on duty when he got the call from an officer at headquarters. The officer was asking for backup. When backup arrived, they saw an extremely drunk man who was talking about killing people. He was asked to come in and talk about whatever it was he needed to get off his chest. He told the police that he committed his first murder in a lobby in downtown Madrid. He said he went in and told the doorman to drop to his knees and then killed him in front of a small child. The officers asked what proof he had. The man said there was money in a wallet on the table and that he had just left it there. The officers were confused because this murder didn't have a playing card involved, but the drunk man continued on. At that point, the lead investigator in the playing card case was called 
to confirm this man's story. Meanwhile, the other officers kept questioning him about his crimes. He said he committed his second murder at the bus stop and left the playing card. It was the Ace of Cups. But that still wasn't enough information for the police. Those murders had been in the paper, and the guy was off the rails drunk, so maybe he was making the whole story up. But then the man told police that he had made a very small mark with a blue pen on the back of each card he left. This was something the police had not shared with the public. This man's name was Alfredo Galan Satia. Alfredo was born not far from Madrid in 1978. As a child, he was considered a bit of a loner, quiet and withdrawn. He didn't make friends easily, and this was concerning to his mother. She would speak to his teachers, asking them to encourage him. Her care, encouragement, and concern for him would end far too early, because she died when he was only ten years old. She had been his comfort, his island in the storm, and her death hit him hard. He felt alone. Alfredo's father was left to pick up the pieces and care for his five children, all while working to support his family. As a single parent, it was likely impossible to give as much love and time to each child as he would have liked to. Alfredo had never been a great student, but his grades dropped off quickly after his mother's death. He began to look for happiness in the bottom of a bottle. His drinking numbed his grief and gave him confidence. He began acting out and goofing off in class, which gave him the attention he wanted. His class pranks and the laughs of his peers would earn him the title of class president. Maybe the title raised his confidence a bit, but he still didn't feel like he was enough. When he was old enough to begin a career, he didn't have many prospects, but the military was an option he didn't hate. He joined the army in 1998 and became a member of the parachute regiment. The prestige and the uniform of the military made him feel powerful and confident. He demanded respect. In the late 90s, Spain sent many of its military personnel to Bosnia as part of a humanitarian effort. When Corporal Alfredo landed in Bosnia, the Serbs and Croats were still in conflict. The Spanish troops were given orders to steer clear of participating in the conflict. Rather, they would be tasked with the job of peacemaking. They weren't given weapons. Their primary job was helping refugees find shelter and reestablishing their lives. The Spaniards would help build or rebuild homes and help families find and identify lost loved ones. This work felt insignificant because of the amount of damage done after years of war and the ongoing tension ever-present between the two factions. Soldiers from both sides shared war stories, horrifying tales of killing, death, and destruction. Some of these stories broke the tellers' hearts, but others seemed to brag about the pain they caused their enemies. Alfredo was intrigued. He wanted to know what it would feel like to kill someone. He and his troop were fired on occasionally, they weren't allowed to fight back, but the urge was there. Most wished they could protect themselves, while others had the urge to hunt and kill, but the talk was mostly hypothetical. After serving two tours in Bosnia, Alfredo had earned a break, but wasn't given one. Instead, he was sent to clean up an oil spill off the coast of Spain. 
He worked hand-in-hand hand with civilian volunteers and seemed to resent every minute of it. He hadn't signed up for cleaning beaches when he joined the Army. That resentment grew during the short time he was tasked with the oil work. Sure, Bosnia wasn't great, but it was much more exciting than sopping up the oil that was continuously leaking from a wrecked tanker. His attitude was terrible. He got into an argument with a woman whose car he took for a joyride. Well, that's what his story was. She believed he had stolen it. While it was in his possession, he angrily punched one of the car windows, breaking it. His behavior was not appreciated by his superiors. It didn't make the military look good. In an effort to explain himself, Alfredo said he was under a lot of stress. He was ordered to attend treatment in Madrid for post-traumatic stress disorder. This made Alfredo angrier than a short person with a long yo-yo. He told his officers what he thought of their directions, and they basically said, get treatment or get out of the military. He went to treatment, but only for one day. His diagnosis was neurosis with anxiety, and he was prescribed antidepressants. Alfredo asked if he could leave, and the doctors let him, but with strict instructions that he take his meds and not drink. It was dangerous to mix the two together. He was sent home to his family, carrying the distinct impression that, because of his diagnosis and treatment, his days with the military were limited. He would have to start making plans for the future. When he arrived home, his family noticed that he wasn't the same man he had been when he left. He was sullen and withdrawn. They believed that he was just processing his time at war. True to his suspicions, the military dismissed him with the reason being medical issues. He was already depressed, and now he had no job and no direction in life. He felt like a failure. Alfredo began to look for work and applied to the police force. He passed the psychological testing, but was unable to pass the physical part of the exams. Another rejection and a newfound resentment of the police were added to the misery that was growing inside of Alfredo. Once again, he turned to alcohol. He pushed his family and friends away. When they asked him what was wrong, he said he didn't want to talk about it. Those closest to him thought it was strange that all he wanted to do was watch war movies and violent documentaries. The violence he seemed to crave wasn't confined to the TV. On Christmas Eve of 2002, he was drinking and got into an argument with one of his siblings. He swore vehemently, then pulled out a handgun and pointed it at his brother. When he saw the look of fear on his brother's face, he lowered the gun and said, Don't worry, it doesn't work. His brother rationalized the behavior, believing it to be a mix of Alfredo's drinking and post-traumatic stress. What he didn't know was that Alfredo had been obsessively thinking about killing someone. There had been months, maybe even years of fantasies building inside his head. He had the perfect weapon for the job. That gun, the one he pointed at his brother, had been illegally paid for in Bosnia for 400 euros, and Alfredo had snuck it home by putting it inside a TV when passing through airport security. The bullets, well, they were just thrown in his backpack. Easy peasy. His simmering anger was ready to boil over. All he thought about now was how he had been wronged and how much he wanted to kill someone. 
He made his fantasy reality on January 24th, 2003. He killed the young father in front of his daughter. He'd almost killed a postal worker earlier that day, but he was interrupted before he had his opportunity to kill her. He stood on the cold outside that day, searching for a victim. He had no one in particular in mind. He wore gloves and sunglasses, which kept him comfortable, disguised him, and wouldn't leave fingerprints. He wandered around aimlessly until he centered his sights on the doorman, his first victim. After he shot the man, he didn't feel anything. Maybe a bit more powerful, but he didn't feel relief or pleasure. It felt almost boring. He decided he needed to do it again. Eleven days later, he shot the man at the bus stop and dropped his first card. Twelve hours after that, he entered the bar and opened fire, killing two and seriously injuring one. He escalated to a spree or rampage killing that afternoon. Maybe he felt remorse after that killing, or more likely he heard that one of his victims lived and was scared. Whatever the reason, he held off killing anyone else for just over a month. He silently scorned the police. He felt they were inept. Stupid. They would never be able to find him. He heard the media talking about the card he had left. They spent so much time speculating about what it meant that he was excited to do it again. Just over a month later, he shot Santiago, and the gun jammed when he tried to shoot Ana. He failed to kill them, but gloated anyway, leaving a second card. Still, his resentment grew. It was ridiculous that the police couldn't catch him. He'd killed four people already and injured three. Eleven days later, he killed Mr. and Mrs. Magda. The morning after his drunken confession, Alfredo said that everything he told the police was a lie. Of course, they didn't believe him, and an investigation into his life began. They searched his home and interviewed people who were close to him. They gathered evidence against him, and most importantly, the playing card killing stopped. The police felt like they had their man. In September, Alfredo went to court, where he officially denied being the playing card killer. He told the attending judge that he had sold the gun he had smuggled home in January. In March, the buyer and another man came to visit him and threatened him. They said he better not tell anyone he had sold it to them and that his fingerprints were still on it. They came back a month later, and this time they told him that they were the playing card killers. Then they held a gun to his head and said that he was going to turn himself into the police. He was going to be their fall guy. They told him everything that they had done and told him to admit it all. In May, they paid him another visit and gave him two months to turn himself in. If he didn't, they would hire someone to kill him, and they would kill his family. While Alfredo was coming up with this story, the police had searched his home, and although they didn't find the gun, they did find a casing that corresponded with a bullet that was fired at the doorman. The police also found a sweatshirt, tracksuit, and gloves that Alfredo had worn when committing the crimes. The clothes matched descriptions given by the victims who lived. Alfredo was in Bosnia, where he admitted to purchasing a gun. Finally, and probably most damning, was that the surviving victims identified him during the trial. Santiago, who had his back turned when he was shot, and the owner of the bar, would positively identify Alfredo. Ana, 
the woman who probably had the best look at him, described him as looking like a shark. There were two big problems for the prosecution. The first was that one of the survivors had identified a different man. The second was that Alfredo had actually been ruled out as a suspect when his picture had been passed over previously by two of the witnesses. The picture the police had used was of Alfredo when he was only 18 or 19. He was now in his mid-twenties. One survivor said that when she saw him in person, she knew immediately that he was the killer. Both of the female survivors would admit that they suffered from post-traumatic stress, and for a while it seemed as if they saw the killer everywhere they looked. What the prosecution never got was the gun that Alfredo said he had thrown away. They searched the local landfills for months and found nothing. They also didn't find the press clippings he allegedly collected or the shoes that he wore. During Alfredo's trial, he changed his story many times. There was plenty of forensic evidence produced, and it finished with the decision that he was indeed the murderer. In 2005, he was found guilty for six murders and three attempted murders. His contempt for human life was noted, and he was given a 142-year sentence. According to a documentary called The Playing Card Killer, Alfredo sat in the courtroom, appearing completely detached. What is interesting to me about this case is that Alfredo was both a spree killer and a serial killer, and that he confessed. Granted, it was while he was drunk, but still, he confessed. He probably would have gotten away with it if he didn't. In some ways, he reminds me of Ted Bundy, who was both a serial killer and a spree killer, but there's no way Ted Bundy would have confessed. I'd love to know your thoughts on this case. Please reach out to Twisted Travel and True Crime on Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. That's where you'll find pictures to go with this case. If you look at the show description on your podcast app, you will find the links for all of those. Thank you to everyone who helps support the show, either monetarily or by sharing the podcast with and talking about it to your friends. Thank you, and as always, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.